Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. If you're using the Bibles in the benches, Luke chapter 15 can be found on page 1623. Now a couple of weeks ago we already had heard the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. But having a couple of weeks to reflect on uh, that message, we left uh, too many important things unsaid and it is also important that we understand chapter 15 as a unit. So we're going to read those parables again along with the parable of the lost son. Here now... God's holy word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, And this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but now is alive again. He is lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. He said, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because 
he has had him back now safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends. In Luke chapter 15, it is important for you to see that Jesus is not casually walking along the road and shooting from his hip random stories that just pop into his mind. But rather, Jesus has carefully, very carefully in fact, crafted these three parables, these three stories, and woven woven them together as one story with one main point. Jesus has carefully crafted these three stories together, woven them together really as one story with one main point. And Luke, as he records the stories for us, is really the one who tips us off to the idea that these are not three separate parables, but these three parables are actually one parable, one story with one main point. Look at verse 3 in the introduction there. It says that Jesus, in response to the complaints of the Pharisees, Jesus told them this parable. He told them this parable in the singular. And you might say, well, maybe that's only referring to the first parable, the one of the lost sheep. But look at the transition in verse 8. Or, suppose a woman has ten silver coins. He told them this parable. In other words, he's telling them one story, but he's telling it in three forms. He's carefully weaving three stories together to mean one. Look at verse 11, the transition to the parable of the lost son. Jesus, it says there, Luke says there, Jesus continued. That is, he's continuing telling a different form of the one parable that he's been telling all along. Jesus has crafted this one story together very, very carefully. And I want you to appreciate uh, this by... Well, there's a number of ways you can see that he's been very careful to do it, but only one that we have time to think about this morning. I want you to appreciate the masterful command that Jesus has of storytelling. And he puts all of this masterful command at work as he lays out these three parables as one parable. The magnificent ways in which there are parallels in all of the three stories which lead us to one central idea, one main point that he does not want us to miss. It is fascinating when we watch Jesus' skill as a storyteller on display. Now if we had more time we could also see how he masterfully weaves many powerful and sometimes subtle Old Testament images and themes and stories into the story also. Which, when you sit back and think about it, your head almost explodes when you think about the precision that 
Christ has used in composing these stories. Again, we don't have all the time to get into his Old Testament references uh, in any sort of adequate way this morning. If you're interested in that and reading more about that in these stories, there's a lot more here than first meets the eye and we can direct you to reading. But just appreciate the way that he tells the story and the interconnectedness of these three stories making to be one story. And uh, that will do us uh, well enough to get the main point, which really is our goal. Now look at the introduction again, just briefly, to this one parable at the beginning of chapter 15. You see that the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Sort of lying in between or amidst verses 1 and 2 is really the reason why Jesus has composed such a complex story with such rich and deep and subtle Old Testament language and such careful interweaving of the three stories into the one. The reason why this parable here is different from some of the other parables in that way is because it is a technical answer. It is a scholarly answer to... Old Testament religious scholars, the Pharisees and the the scribes, who are opposing him. You see, one thing we'll notice a little bit later is when they mutter and say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, it's not just a small complaint that they don't like how he acts, but it's based on a deep-seated conviction, a deep-seated reading of the Old Testament, really a wrong reading of the Old Testament, and Jesus responds to that by carefully crafting a story with subtle, subtle and powerful Old Testament images to address not just the common man, like you and me, with a nice story that's interconnected, but to address this underlying perversion of the Old Testament that the Pharisees had. So this is a tip to see that we ought to look for more deep features in this parable because he's speaking it to scholars to refute the complaint of religious scholars who are opposing him. Keep those things in mind as we proceed. So, in any case, we want to get at the main point of these parables and if we want to get at that main point and apply it to our own lives, there are three things that we need to have clear in our minds. Three things we need to have clear in our minds. First, we have to see exactly how these three stories fit together as one story. And secondly, we have to understand exactly what the Old Testament religious scholars who were opposing him believed. And third, we want to see how Jesus, in telling this one parable, addresses and rejects the false belief of those Pharisees and Old Testament religious scholars who were opposing him. So first, how are these three stories as one story? Second, what were they complaining about exactly? What did they believe that gave rise to their complaint against Jesus and opposing him? And third, how does Jesus, through telling the story... Show them what they're saying and reject it. That will give us the main point and that will help us apply it to our lives. So I ask you first, how do these three parables fit together? Well, in the first place, one obvious thing is that this one story, this one parable, is about invitations to a celebratory feast with the local community. This one parable, in all of its three forms, is about an invitation 
to a celebratory feast with the local community, with your neighbors. Look at chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And when he finds it, that is the shepherd finds that lost sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then what? He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep. And what happens in verse 9 when the woman finds the coin? She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. Now when we first read that, we might say, Well, I don't see anything in those two versions of this one parable about food and a celebratory feast. All I see is some people being called together. And that's because you're not thinking like a Middle Eastern person. If you were a Middle Eastern person, if you were a hearer of the Lord Jesus Christ when He told this parable in His culture, you would know that nobody would ever invite friends over to their house or even out into the square to celebrate anything that would be a cause for rejoicing without serving them food or at least something to drink. And uh, some of you have seen Middle Eastern parties in action. And I'm not just talking about the grandiose ones that are at weddings and things, but maybe you've been invited over to somebody with a Middle Eastern background to talk for five minutes. And what do they do? They force you to eat. They force you to drink. And the original hearers would have already seen in the first two versions of this parable that this is calling to mind a rejoicing, a celebratory feast over something that is a good cause for rejoicing. And of course, in the third parable, the parable of the lost son, that becomes more explicit. Look at verse 23. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Verse 24. Music and, drink, uh, music and dancing is there. You see, this is all about a celebratory feast with an invitation to the community to come and join in the rejoicing over this good cause for rejoicing. You see, all of the three parables hang together. They're all talking about that invitation. There are, of course, negative variations on the same theme too. Right? In at least one of the stories, you see the prodigal son in verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen who sent him in the field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. See, there's a contrast here. These parables are all about this great invitation of the community to come together and celebrate and feast. And here's the prodigal wishing that he could eat the pig food. He is not celebrating in a feast, but he is celebrating with pigs and eating their food, wishing he could eat their food. And there's another variation. I think there's people in this story who hear the invitation to come to the celebratory feast, but they reject it, don't they? Look at the older son in verse 25. Or 26. 27, actually. He comes out. He hears that the brother has come and that the celebration is going on. What does he say? Verse 28. He was angry and he wouldn't go in. He was angry. He refused the invitation to come to the feast. So whether it's by just saying that there's this celebratory feast going on and inviting people to rejoice in it or whether it's through people that are not part of the feast for various reasons that is certainly a theme that holds all of these parables together isn't it? well what else? well obviously also that this one story is about something or someone who is hopelessly lost look at verse 4 suppose one of you has a hundred sheep 
and loses one of them. This sheep is hopelessly lost. Now, see, we don't know shepherds today. We don't see sheep running around. Some of us may know a little bit about cows, right? But none of us in our community drive by sheep every day, and we don't know what it's like to lose a sheep. But I want you to think about this image for a minute. This sheep being hopelessly lost. When a sheep was lost in these days, this is what it meant. The sheep would wander off from his flock. And it would crawl under a rock or under a bush. And it would start to make a very loud, ugly sound. They say a sheep would bleat is the word for it. And make this loud and ugly sound. And if you didn't find the sheep quickly, another wild animal would come to the sheep, would find it, kill it, and devour it. This sheep was hopelessly lost. And this sheep is so terrified and so stupid, it is not going to be able to deliver itself out from under that rock or out from that crag. And at that even, when the shepherd comes and actually finds the sheep bleating and making this ugly noise and trapped, it gets scared and its legs go numb. And maybe if you have a dog that doesn't like to take a bath, you know the similar idea. A dog which may weigh 20 pounds or 50 pounds becomes dead weight, doesn't it? And it takes 10 people to drag that dog which has ran off to the corner of the yard and planted itself down to drag it and lift it and carry it. A 50 pound dog feels like it weighs 500 pounds to put it in the bath, doesn't it? And that's exactly what a sheep does. It becomes dead weight. 57 pounds of smelly, stupid dead weight screaming at you. To the point that some shepherds, as they tell us, and there are still some Middle Eastern shepherds today, yes, they help us interpret these parables, they tell us that the idea is that sometimes you might have to break the leg to get that stupid sheep which has become dead weight out of its hiding place so that you can put it on your shoulders and carry it home. The point is, this sheep is never going to find itself coming back to the flock by itself at all. There is absolutely no chance. This sheep is hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. And stupid. And yelling. And right on the verge of being devoured. And that's the same with this coin that's lost, isn't it? In this other story. This coin is hopelessly lost. Suppose there's a woman, verse 8, who has ten silver coins and loses one. Let me ask you a question. How valuable is a lost coin to you? Now, this silver coin in this day was worth one day's wages. Now, if this woman does not have possession of this coin, how valuable is that coin to her? Well, it's not any more valuable to her than a hole in her socks because she doesn't have it. It's lost. Inherently, it has value, sure. But does it have any value to its rightful owner if it's lost? No, it does not. It is hopelessly lost. In fact, it's worse, isn't it, than never having possessed that coin in the first place. Maybe you know it. You may have ever lost a a $20 bill. How does that feel? Well, you check your pockets. You can't find it. You dropped it along the way. It's worse than ever having money in your pocket in the first place. You can't hardly believe it. And this coin has no value to its rightful owner when it's lost. And the coin is not going to grow legs and walk over back to the coin purse and find itself in there rightfully restored, is it? No. It's hopelessly lost. And the parable, of the, prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son is exactly the same character here, don't we have? We have this hopelessly lost son. Look at, look at his condition in verse 16. He longs 
to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. The man was so low down and broke and in despair that the owners of the pigs would not even let him skim off the top of the pig food and eat it when he was hungry. I mean, the idea is that when he went back after feeding the pigs and cleaning the pigs or whatever he did, whatever his responsibilities were, the idea is that they maybe just fed him enough to keep him alive. But he is feeling as if the pigs are getting better treatment than him. Hopelessly lost. I mean, you cannot be in a worse situation in life than this, that you don't even have as much food as the pigs or the quality of food that the pigs have. There is nothing left for this man, this son, to do but die. And you know, if he goes back home, there are certain Jewish ceremonies that await him. And any original hearer of this parable would know there were very strict warnings to the sons of Jewish families that if you receive your inheritance, you should never lose it to a Gentile. And if you lose your inheritance to a Gentile and you come back into the community, you will be shunned. And they even had a ceremony that outwardly demonstrated the how much the community despised those who lost their inheritance to the Gentiles. So he can't go home either. His safe harbor is in the pig pen. This is how low down he is. And you know what? It's it's rightfully so that he finds himself in this condition, isn't it? Now again, with Western ears, it's difficult for us to understand just how bad this man has sinned. But I want you to look at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 15, how the story starts. The younger one says to his father, Father, give me my share of estate. So the man divides his property between them. Let me paraphrase what the son is saying to his father when he goes to him before his father is even ill on his deathbed and says, I want my portion of the inheritance. You know what he's saying to his father? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Now again, to American ears, to Western ears, to my ears and your ears, you know, we don't necessarily hear that as strongly as we otherwise might because children today have a lot more clout, right, in our culture and in our families than maybe they did in the history of society. And it's interesting that if a Middle Eastern son had gone to a Middle Eastern man and said, I wish you were dead, told his father that, you know, what we expect is not that his father is going to give him the property that he asked for, but we expect that immediately he's going to get smacked in the mouth. This is not... 21st century Western culture. This is a Middle Eastern man with his son and a Middle Eastern son comes and tells his father, I wish you were dead. That man is going to smack him across the face. I know I have Middle Eastern friends who have scars on their mouths from getting slapped across their face all the time they were growing up. But you can see how wicked this son is to request this of his father. That's the point. And not only that, but you see, he liquidates his assets as soon as possible. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. What does that mean? Did he pack up the land and pack up the sheep in a backpack? No. The community pressure, despising him for this kind of 
public disobedience to his father. Why his father went along with it, the people must be wondering. I don't understand. But for him to confer his inheritance upon him and to send him out, and this man to liquidate all of his assets quickly means he doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care that he's publicly disgracing his father in front of all the community and he sets out. Awful. It's awful. Verse 17. I'll tell you something else that's awful. Well, the first thing that's awful is the translation that you have at the beginning of verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses. Now, the actual wording here, and of our English translations, the King James, of course, and the New King James are the only one that really translate it right, but you can understand how people would change the wording a little bit because it's hard to really get at what it means. If we could say, use the word literally, the translation is, in verse 17, when the son came to himself. When the son came to himself. Now the NIV here, and NASB and many others, translate it when he came to his senses. Meaning that he sort of woke up out of his rebellion and his being bad and his disobedience and he came to his senses and realized that what he was doing was wrong and that he had to repent. But you know, that is just not what this says. Look at verse 17 and hear it this way. When he came to himself. Now, in and of itself, that expression, when he came to, when he came to himself, it could mean, couldn't it? It could mean that he did wake up and come to his senses and that he did realize that all that he was doing was wrong and he should repent from it. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think when it says he came to himself, it's talking about instead of, say, coming to his father or coming to repentance or changing his ways, he came right back to number one like he had been coming back to himself all along. He came to himself and he says, verse 17, How many of my father's side men have food to spare in here? I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now I want you to understand that the only way that a Middle Eastern son, having squandered all of his inheritance to the Gentiles, the only way that he could be received back into the community and restored was to earn the money back And so he devises a plan where he will be able to go back and earn enough money, so he thinks, work his way back into the favor of his father. So he devises this this plan of speech. I want you to notice the difference between the job he had with the pigs and the job he anticipates having at home. The job with the pigs, he couldn't receive anything. They just gave him enough food to survive. But he knows that his servants have enough, his dad's servants at home have enough money to store it up and maybe he's thinking he's going to pay back and restore himself to the good graces of his father and of the community. Working his way back to the favor, favor of the father but he crafts then this very outwardly persuasive speech that he's going to give to the Father, right? Oh, I I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, if it's not there, you might say something, but he goes on to say, you know, I'm going to earn my way back. Make me like one of your hired men. So he goes up and goes back to his Father. You know what kind of repentance this is? It's a not repentance. It's arrogance. It's like the Pharaoh in Exodus 9 
consistently getting the plagues of the Lord poured out upon his people because he will not let Moses go. And what does Pharaoh do every time? The Pharaoh sends and calls for Moses and Aaron and he says to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail for it's enough and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And when Pharaoh sees the rain, the hail and the thunder ceased, he sinned all the more and he hardened his heart and he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard and neither would he let the children of of Israel go and the Lord had spoken by Moses. You see, he had planned this all along. Pharaoh knew what to say. Pharaoh said, well, Moses and Aaron are idiots. They'll believe anything that I say. Oh, we've sinned against your God and then they'll go tell him and he'll stop it. And Pharaoh was hard in heart so he didn't learn the lesson. He used all the right words but he didn't mean it. And that's exactly what this prodigal is doing. He's carefully crafting this story. You know, there's no shame in verse 17, is there? In fact, he tells his father, yeah, I'm going to work my way back into the destruction that I have made of my life and of your life. I'm going to come back. I'm going to work and earn it back. And that is not repentance. That is arrogance. That is evil. He is lost. He is hopelessly lost at this point in the story. I want you to see that. He is as lost as that sheep, dead weight, under the rock. He's as lost as that coin which will not grow legs and come back. He is not coming back. Not coming back at all. And of course this one story, these three stories as one story are held together by what? The ones who joyfully go out and receive and find and save those who are lost. We have in the story of the lost sheep, that shepherd. That shepherd who could just as well say, you know, 1% of all my holdings would be fine to lose rather than go out and search for this bleeding sheep. I'm going to have to break his legs and carry him all the way home. But that's not his response. He rather joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders and goes home. This woman who interestingly... We're tempted maybe to think of her as a poor woman, but she's not a poor woman. Uh, If she's got ten coins, each worth about a day's wages in her savings account, meaning in her coin purse in the house, likely she's married and her husband has entrusted her to keep the money. You know, it isn't the end of the world that you lose one day's wages. I mean, you're not going to be happy about it. Uh, But she doesn't just let it go, right? She sweeps the house and lights the lamp to find it and rejoices when she does. And then you have this father, don't you, who rejoices. Now I want you to see in verse 20 uh, that the father does not even wait to have this son come to him and give this false repentance speech. But he was still a long way off. His father sees him. Now how does his father see him if he's still a long way off? Well, it's very likely that the father has been expecting, has been hoping and watching for this son. While he was still a long way off, his father sees him and was filled with compassion for him. And he runs to his son and he throws his arms around him and kisses him. Now, there's nothing strange 
in Western society to see a man running in the street. In fact, people who jog are looked uh, up to. But let me tell you, if you've got a Middle Eastern man running down the street of the village in these times, people will think one of two things. Either the man has lost his mind completely, or he is of such low class that he would show himself publicly to be sort of beholden to somebody else that he's running to greet. I mean, men in Middle Eastern culture, especially in this time, would never run to meet anybody, let alone the son who had disgraced him publicly. And not only that, a Middle Eastern man would never bring the best robe and put it on his, the best robe. This man squandered his inheritance and put him to public disgrace. And yet this father pursues him doesn't even hear this feigned sign of repentance, but pursues him to reconcile himself to this son who has been disobedient. Brings the best robe, puts it on him, puts a ring on his finger, probably the signet ring of the family, symbolizing the authority and the trust of the family that has now been restored to this boy, who has set the family to public shame. And then bring the fan calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate everything contrary to what you would expect a man to do with a son like this. And all of the community is watching. All of the community is watching. You see how the three parables fit as one. Very quickly, what is the point of the story? Verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now you know when you sit down and eat with people, in Middle Eastern culture, it's more than just, let's have lunch and have a quick bite because we both have to eat. It's showing intimacy and connectedness and that we are of the same mind. This is why, for example, the Pharisees were very careful about who they ate with. There was another group of Old Testament religious scholars and believers in that day called the Essenes. Some of you know that word because they were the ones we believe composed the Dead Sea Scrolls. But you know that they lived off outside of the community in a cliff. Why? Because they believed that to follow the law of God they would not be they could not remain pure by living with the common people, you see. They were the ones who to remain ceremonially clean, according to the Old Testament, had to remove themselves out of ordinary society and live away from people. Now the Pharisees looked at groups like the Essenes and said, now they're radical, they're extremists, we don't believe that. However, we do believe that we may not just sit down and eat with anybody. We have to eat with the people who are understanding the law of God as we understand it, who are exerting themselves as rigorously as we are exerting ourselves, who are following our interpretations of the law of Moses. We may eat with those people because they are the ones who are clean like we are. And that's why, by the way, one of the reasons why the Pharisees had all of these washing ceremonies that Jesus is always prodding them about these man-made washing ceremonies at meals because eating time was uh, a time where they had to be ceremonially clean and only eat with a certain amount of people those who were like them they would never 
eat with the common man, let alone the kind of people that Jesus was sitting down and eating with. The tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. Never. Why? Because, remember, the Pharisees believed that they were obedient to the law of Moses and those people who were like them and thought they were obedient to that law and followed their extra ceremonies which made them feel like they were really obedient to that law those people could eat with them and for a prophet of God this Jesus guy, this rabbi for him to eat with people who did not share that view was to reject the law of God in their mind So again, the reason they're complaining that Jesus is welcoming and eating with sinners is because they believe they're being obedient to God's law and Jesus is not. They are being clean and everybody else is not. And if you are clean, how can you eat Jesus with these prostitutes and these tax collectors and other kinds of outcasts and sinners, the drunks? How does Jesus respond with this story to that complaint? Well, he sets them up as the older son, doesn't he? He says, well, let me tell you who you are. You're the older son who in the midst of the rejoicing says in verse 29, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Now, now read that line again. Never disobeyed your orders. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the rich young ruler. Right? The rich young ruler who meets Jesus and says, oh, I kept all the commandments from my youth. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. You are the older son. Here you are witnessing in your community an invitation to a celebratory feast when I am saving the most outcast, degenerate, hopelessly lost people, inviting them to the wedding feast of the Lamb. I'm showing grace to them. I'm like the father who pursues them. I'm like the the wife who finds the coin. I'm like the shepherd who finds the sheep. And you're like the older son who says, I've never sinned against you. And how can you eat with such filthy people when all the while Jesus is telling them, you are filthy too. You are supposed to identify yourself as the prostitute, as the tax collector, as the sinner and plead with me for your grace and join my celebration as I save you. But they won't do it because they're hardened in their heart. This is the point in the parable, people of God, that you are to identify yourself With the tax collector and the sinner, the stupid sheep who's hopelessly lost, that coin which has no value unless it's found. Yes, the son who rejected his father and wished he was dead and wandered away from him. And even the older son who is grumpy when the father would show grace because of his own self-righteousness. We are to identify ourselves as the sinner who is hopelessly lost in the story But greater than that, than the rejoicing, having been found by Christ who loves us. You know, there's no end to Luke 15. If you think about that, I've always thought about this with this parable. What happens at the end? What does the older son do? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us. You know why he does that? Because he leaves it open to these Pharisees that he's preaching to. To write the end of the story for themselves. They're the older son. You tell me how it's going to end, Jesus is saying to them. You tell me if you are going to identify yourself 
with the prodigal, with the lost sheep and the lost coin. You're going to admit that you're hopelessly lost and that you are going to flee to me for mercy and I will receive you and we will rejoice. Or are you going to be left in your own stubbornness, your own self-righteousness, your own condemning attitude of others. There's so many details we passed over. Let's just give you one more. Think about what the older son says about his younger brother. He says that, Father, you give your son this fatted calf who wasted all of his wealth on prostitutes. Now what's interesting is, in verse 13, it does not tell us that the son went on and lived immorally. You know, we've all, many of us, I have, I've been taught that growing up, that this son, this prodigal son, went out and lived in an immoral lifestyle. It just says that he squandered his wealth in wild living, but it's not really wild living. That's not the translation. It could mean that, but it's a more general term. It's like loose living. In other words, uh, spendthrift. He just went out and wasted his money. It doesn't mean that he spent it on prostitutes. But see, this is the attitude, isn't it, always of the self-righteous. And I want you to be careful that you are not one of these people. That you always look at everybody else and see all of the problems and the sins that they have. You look around yourself in the church. I wish everybody else was as stable as I am. I wish everybody else was in the same class of whatever as I am. I wish that, you know, you fill in the blank. I, you know, I see the problems and the sins in other people's lives and I just take a blind eye to my own failures. That's exactly what this man, he is quick, the older son, to judge the other one for things he doesn't even know about. Because of his own arrogance and self-righteousness, he fails to see his own need, his own lost condition, that he has nothing in and of himself. So we ought not to be like that older brother, like the Pharisees, right? We ought to let the law of Moses convict us that we are sinful and hopelessly lost, but that the Lord Jesus rejoices to bring us home. He looks upon those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at His word, and He receives them, and He will usher you in to the great wedding feast of the Lamb at the last day, rejoicing with all of God's people at the magnificence of His grace in our lives, that we were hopelessly lost, and He came and found us when we were unwilling and unable to come. Make sure that that is our prayer to Him and our acknowledgement so that we may be sure that we'll be found with Him. And to that all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are like the sheep having gone astray. We are like the lost coin. We are like the prodigal son. We are even like the older son. We have self-righteousness to add to all of our sins as if they weren't enough. But we thank you that you have not left us, but you rejoice to pursue us and find us at all costs, at the dear cost of the blood of your Son. And thank you for having opened our eyes to this truth. Would you steer us clear of any self-righteousness? And would our passion be an expectation of the wedding feast of the Lamb in which we will delight in you and be glorified along with all of your people, all of us, tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.